Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. You've probably heard the phrase that when it comes to life expectancy, your zip code matters more than your genetic code. Indeed, health disparities, not just in life expectancy, are profound, with myriad health indicators varying significantly based upon where people live. And in the United States, a critical element of where people live is a long history of intentional policies designed to segregate neighborhoods by race. These policies were most visible in practices like restrictive covenants and redlining, but other more subtle policies have been and continue to play a role. The result, according to a 2021 report by researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, is that 81% of metropolitan regions in the United States, with population of more than 200,000, were actually more segregated in 2019 than they were in 1990. So what is the relationship between where you live, your health, and the health disparities we observe in the United States? That's the topic of today's episode of A Health Podacy. I'm here with Ingrid Gould-Ellen, the Paulette Goddard Professor of Urban Policy and Planning at the NYU Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. Dr. Ellen and co-authors published an overview paper in the February 2024 issue of Health Affairs, an issue devoted entirely to the topic of housing and health. Their overview summarized the evidence regarding the relationship between neighborhoods, health, and inequality. We'll discuss the evidence and what we can do to reduce health disparities tied to housing in today's episode. Dr. Ellen, welcome to the program. Thanks. Happy to be here. This is such an important topic, and with all the focus on the social determinants of health and people talk about housing, they often talk about whether or not someone has a home, which is obviously critical, or the quality of the home. But your overview focuses on a different dimension, which is the neighborhood where that home is located. So maybe we could just start at the highest level. When you say the neighborhood where you live affects your health, what does that actually mean? What dimensions of the neighborhood matter when it comes to someone's health? You know, the honest answer is that we don't fully know. We have rigorous research now showing that neighborhoods where you live can affect your health, but we really have very little understanding of what is inside the black box of neighborhoods. And, and But, you know, that said, right, there are some theoretical reasons to think that neighborhoods should shape health outcomes. And we have at least some hints from the empirical research, the body of empirical research. And, and I'd say, you know, maybe it's sort of like four things. I mean, one is kind of access to both public and, and private institutions. And I would highlight grocery stores in particular. There's probably the most research there showing that proximity to affordable, healthy grocery stores does seem to have some connection to health. I think also just more broadly, the physical characteristics of a neighborhood, the access to parks, to green space, to, to walkable sidewalks, pollution and environmental contaminants. I think there's actually some of the best research there showing that whether it's air quality, water quality, lead, obviously a big one, really all of these really can affect um, birth outcomes and, and child outcomes. Noise through things like highways, um, noise can elevate stress there is um, and, and affect health. And then I think the social environment of a neighborhood really can matter too. And probably we have the best evidence on the effects of violence stress, acute stress that that can, uh, that that can cause, um, and ongoing, frankly, um, sort of weathering. Um, and, and, you know, poverty measure, you know, really does seem to matter. Um, but 
we, again, that's where it's like, I'm not sure. I don't think we know exactly what's inside that, that black box. It's not like living next door to someone who is poor is bad for your health. It's a whole collection of what it means, the deprivation in high poverty neighborhoods. And it could be also about, you know, collective efficacy and trust and social networks and norms and information and, you know, sort of the kinds of, I mean, I recently moved to um, Brooklyn and I'm in this, you know, very tight, wonderful neighborhood that has, you know, my neighbors text me if there's a package outside my door, like they pick up my packages. There's a local park right here where there are weekly gatherings. And it's sort of so, you know, I think that your neighborhood can and your neighbors can provide a lot of social supports. So I appreciate the uh, honest start to your answer that uh, the evidence base is better for some sub-dimensions, you might say, than sort of the overall question of location, but then to actually present where there is evidence. And as I hear you talk, it sounds loosely, and you refer to this in the overview paper, that there are a set of sort of physical environment characteristics, uh, as you say, parks, noise, pollution, access to food, which define what you experience as you live there physically. And then this sort of social, the network, the efficacy, the sense of safety and community, which are protective of health and sometimes health promoting. And of course, there's a relationship between these two. So I have long had an interest uh, in the resource allocation dimensions of neighborhoods and uh, how particularly in the United States with local property taxes playing such a large role in funding, particularly for education, which is something we haven't mentioned. This notion that where you live also affects the resources available to help you achieve a healthy life. Can you say a little bit about what's unique and maybe what isn't about how we approach resource allocation in the United States relative to neighborhoods? What's unique is that we ask local governments to fund and provide a lot more services, a lot more public services. And and we ask them to fund those public services, as you suggested, out of local property taxes for the most part. And so what does that mean? That means that that gives local governments, local residents, an incentive to exclude low-income households, to exclude sort of low-valued properties. That's often multifamily housing, apartments that will contribute less to the tax base. And it's sort of often called sort of fiscal zoning. But that, you know, fiscal zoning can also be exclusionary zoning, right? And it means that you are having sort of the structure of local government basically provides an incentive to local governments to exclude low-income families, particularly also families with children who have to attend the local schools and the other thing that is somewhat unique around the in the United States is that local governments also have control over local land use regulations. And so what does that mean? It means that local you know, local governments not only have the incentive to exclude low income families, but they also have the tools to do so through exclusionary zoning and through, you know, establishing large minimum lot sizes. So you can only build large plots of land that are expensive or and banning um, apartment buildings uh, altogether. And so, you know, it turns out that where one lives really shapes the set of public services that you get. Now, you also have the other piece of this is that you also can have variation within a 
municipalities, sort of across and within cities, really, where you have multiple neighborhoods. And you think about it that, you know, the neighborhood that you live in determines how often your garbage is collected. So I I said, I'm living in this wonderful neighborhood in in Brooklyn. And it's, you know, it's an it's an affluent neighborhood. But I will say that I recently found out that our garbage gets collected twice a week. The the more affluent neighborhood that we're adjacent to, their garbage gets collected three times per week. No difference in the housing stock. It's sort of, I mean, you know, so again, I am very lucky to live in a very privileged neighborhood. But you know, it, it and also determines access to libraries and, you know, parks public safety, um, and most notably, which you mentioned, schools, right? That is a big part of why neighborhoods matter to children and and families in the United States. And I think, and, and, you know, there's a health story there too, right? That's sort of where the quality of the school that you get to go to, that your sense of feeling safe and comfortable and supported in that school, um, that really does, that, that varies a lot across neighborhoods. And, um, and again, the way we set up, whether it's across jurisdictions, but even within jurisdictions, right, we often have zoned attendant zones where sort of where you live determines which school you get to go to, particularly elementary schools. And, and what we know from, let me say one more thing, which is that what we know from you know, the research is that children, young children may be most sensitive to their neighborhood environments. So you said something, uh, you said a lot of things that are interesting, but one thing that really stood out for me is the combination of localities having incentives and the tools to exclude. And that you could imagine if you had one without the other, either one without the other, you might see different outcomes. But when you pair the two together, in certain circumstances, you're going to find those uh, those types of authority used in particular ways. So I think it's critical, you talked a lot about resources and income and exclusion. I think it's critical that we layer on top of that the role of race, because that is a dimension along which we've also seen resource allocation quite divided by neighborhood. Uh, let's introduce that subject after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm here with uh, Dr. Ingrid Gould-Ellen talking about the relationship between neighborhoods and health. Uh, In the first part of our conversation, we sort of set the stage of why it really does matter where you live with respect to your health, both what we know and some things that we know sort of at at the high level, but maybe don't know exactly how the mechanisms are that create those relationships. But right before the break, we were talking about resource allocation and the role of neighborhoods. We have such a history and a present status of segregation of neighborhoods by race in the United States that it's really impossible to think about these resource issues without also talking about the policies that have existed. And then if we're serious about reducing health inequities, which is where this conversation is going to head, we have to think about the role of racial segregation in perpetuating those and what could be done to reverse them. So let's just start, if I could ask you at a higher level, if you could say a little bit about the role of race in the uh, resource allocation and segregation items that we've been discussing. 
And you can't talk about resource allocation and neighborhoods in this country without talking about race. Racial segregation continues to characterize U.S. cities, um, particularly black-white segregation. But actually, we're seeing, you know, by some measures, an, an increase in, in Hispanic-white segregation and Asian-white segregation. You know, and unfortunately, segregation in this country has not created separate but equal neighborhoods, right? If, if it did, then we still might have some concern, but we certainly wouldn't be as concerned about segregation and its, and its effects. And I think we're also should be concerned about segregation given the causes. And, uh, you know, both public sector and private sector discrimination have historically created segregation that uh, through a variety of different policies, through realtor discrimination, through, you know, private on the private market, through landlord discrimination, through lender discrimination, lending discrimination. And this, you know, segregation was also fueled by the avoidance on the part of of white households to live in racially integrated neighborhoods due to race-based stereotypes about neighborhoods. I mean, you know, individual racial animus as well, but also I think broader race-based stereotypes. Uh, We talked before the break about local land use regulations, right? The, the policies that many localities have enacted to say, ban apartment buildings. What does that mean? It means there's a lot less rental housing. Well, because of historical discrimination, households of color are much more likely to be renters in this country, right? They um, have less wealth, they have less ability to sort of buy into home ownership. And so what that has meant is that there's sort of this a significant racial overlay on a policy that, that bans apartment buildings in a community, in a wealthy, affluent white community. It's going to sort of zone out low-income households, but it'll also disproportionately exclude households of color. You know, I think there's also historical disinvestment on the part of private businesses as well. Um, And so you have seen kind of longstanding disinvestment in communities of color, which have which and the upshot is that the households of different you know races live in communities that have very different resource levels. Um, You know, we cite uh, some research in the paper that um, shows that white families live in neighborhoods that are nearer to higher performing schools and much safer streets um, than, uh, you know, with lower levels of violence than black and Hispanic families. And the difference is not just about poverty level, individual poverty level. In 2014, the average poor white family lived in a safer neighborhood than the average non-poor black family. And, and that's been the result. Your comment that we would be less concerned about segregation if it were separate but equal, we don't need to get into the question of how much less we would be concerned. But let's just say that our concerns are definitely heightened because it's quite clear that the segregation we have is perpetuating inequities and uh, those inequities are affecting people's health. In your paper, as I read it, I see sort of, uh, this is my language, not yours, but I see sort of what I think of as immediate interventions or sort of short-term direct responses, as well as longer-term systemic uh, responses that would potentially reverse the legacy, not just the worst of today. So maybe uh, as we move our conversation forward, I'd ask you to start with what I would call first order. Uh, We have disparate outcomes. We have disparate circumstances. 
What are some of the relatively immediate uh, steps that could be taken that would reverse the disparities that we observe? So let me start with policies and supports to help low-income families and families of color move to more resource-rich neighborhoods. And, you know, we actually have a tool for this, right? We have in the United States, the largest federal rental assistance program is the Housing Choice Voucher Program. And the Housing Choice Voucher Program is, it's different than place-based subsidized housing or public housing in that households can use their subsidy technically, theoretically, to live in any neighborhood. The the idea is that recipients pay 30% of their income towards rent, the government pays the difference between the rent charged by that amount, 30% of a tenant's income, and the rent charge up to a cap, up to a rent ceiling. The problem is that in reality, if you look at where voucher holders live, they most of them are living in neighborhoods that look very much like the neighborhoods that other poor renters are living in in the United States. And so I think that the Housing Choice Voucher Program has not, to date, sort of lived up to its promise of really enabling choice. But I think there's sort of more hopeful evidence that there are ways that we can reform the housing choice voucher program to help it live up to its potential and genuinely provide a set of choices. And one is there's very good recent evidence, really compelling evidence from the Creating Moves to Opportunity program. And basically, they provided kind of customized housing search assistance and landlord recruitment and some incentives. And they found that um, that package really helped housing choice voucher holders. But there are a set of other things that we could do around the housing choice voucher program, like moving to zip code level rent ceilings rather than um, citywide. You know, scaling up these programs. I mean, I don't think that's that's one tool. That's one important tool. But I think in addition, I think we need to better enforcement of our of our fair housing laws. Um, you know, while the kind of blatant door slamming that was rampant in the middle of the 20th century has subsided, we still see consistent evidence that housing market discrimination continues to constrain the choices of Black and Hispanic families and steer them to neighborhoods with lower performing schools, with worse air quality, with, you know, higher rates of violence. And so I think that's something we we do need to invest in that enforcement. I think we should be investing in subsidized housing in a wide range of neighborhoods. And I think we also need sort of more affirmative programs to and policies to invest in disadvantaged neighborhoods. And, And I would point to to public housing in particular. So you describe a set of interventions that basically would help some subset, even if we expanded these programs, they would help some subset of people who are experiencing sort of the negative consequences of the fact that they are in neighborhoods that are not health promoting. And that as with any sort of social problem, it's you you want to celebrate the possibility of incrementally addressing the problem. But you also would be the first, I know, to acknowledge that increasing the scale of vouchers, the number of vouchers, the places people could take them, doesn't really get at the heart of the issue, which is that in segregated neighborhoods, there are still going to be a large number of people who uh, don't have access to things that promote their health. So if we take a longer view, a more equity-focused view, uh, where does that lead you in terms of policy? First of all, I really like the way you frame this about saying it really is about these sort of 
shorter term or immediate policies really can help some people. They are more incremental. Um, I do want to just start up front to say, I think often we have a discussion where there's sort of advocates who are sort of for more incremental approaches, and then there are advocates for more structural approaches. My view, strong view, is that we need to do both. That just because we think there are need to be structural improvements, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be continuing to push on these incremental approaches too. So I just want to say that up front. But in terms of the more structural approaches, I mean, you know, even if I could wave a wand tomorrow and do away with all housing market discrimination, right, inequality and segregation would persist, right? And so, um, and even if, as you said, we sort of successfully made all the reforms that I would like to see to the, you know, to the housing choice voucher program, we still would see inequality. And, and so I think that some of those more affirmative, more structural steps that I think we would need to take to really address neighborhood inequality is, um, number one, is um, addressing land use regulations and exclusionary zoning. And, and I think we're seeing, you know, hopefully we're kind of amazingly seeing some movement in this area, right? We're seeing states around the country now adopting various kinds of reforms that restrict the ability of localities to zone out new housing and smaller housing and uh, multifamily housing. So that's very hopeful that, uh, and I think you really do need for effective zoning reforms, you really do need to go up to the sort of a higher level of government because localities in themselves are rarely going to choose to to sort of upzone or allow for more density. So, so that's number one. Number two, I'd say sort of school finance reforms that actually kind of finance provide educational financing, fair share regimes where um, every community basically has to allow some amount of affordable housing. That's right, famously sort of in, in New Jersey, right? That's the sort of the Mount Laurel regime, um, and and you can still give localities and or neighborhoods if you're doing it at the neighborhood level, lots of choice and discretion about where they build that housing, what the design of that housing was going to be, but that every community should be required to be building some housing um, and affordable housing. And then I, I, you know, let me just say the last thing I would say is, of course, because as a researcher, we need more research, right? I think we we genuinely need. I, I think one one real gap is that. We really don't have great evidence about kind of what what are the kinds of neighborhood interventions that can really move the needle to help to sort of enrich historically disadvantaged neighborhoods and make them healthier and safer places to live. Well, I appreciate you ending at that spot, because one of the things that strikes me is that as much as we have conversations about racial progress and the, as you say, the elimination of certain practices that were commonplace uh, 50 years ago in terms of exclusionary zoning, completely legal practices around lending that would lead to segregation, we continue to have, and as I noted at the outset, we actually have growing levels of segregation. And so uh, this isn't just about attitudes, I guess is what I'm trying to say here. If we if we actually uh, want to change the nature of neighborhoods, um, it is a combination of many things. Some of it has to do with, as you said, the assumptions people made about people of a different race or ethnicity. But this is so baked in that just undoing the discriminatory practices doesn't actually necessarily lead to a lot of change. It just opens the door to change, but it doesn't necessarily cause the change. And so we need sort of a combination of dismantling historic practices, but maybe also 
a more affirmative agenda uh, where either I think that's absolutely right. I, I will say one thing just that, I mean, by, you know, by the most common measure of segregation, the dissimilarity index, black-white segregation actually has declined over the past several decades, but it remains high. It has not led to separate but equal neighborhoods. Well, Dr. Ellen, thank you for uh, this overview. It's it's such an important dimension, as I said, we're having all these conversations about the social determinants of health, the complex relationship between where people live and their access to a healthy life and the the uh, things that uh, make it possible to be healthy is, as you said at the outset, incredibly complex, not all fully understood with evidence, but definitely shows up in the data. And uh, if we're serious about reducing health inequalities, we have to look at the housing dimension. And you've made that clear in your paper and clear in our conversation. So I am uh, appreciative of the work you're doing. And thank you for being my guest today on Health Policy. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about the Health Policy.